You're listening to Retail Refined, a market scale podcast with me, Melissa Gonzalez. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Retail Refined, a market scale podcast with me, Melissa Gonzalez, your host. Today we have Joe Jackman, the CEO of Jackman Reinvents the world's foremost reinvention company and author of The Reinventionist Mindset, Learning to Love Change and the Human How of Doing It Brilliantly. Throughout his 30-plus year career as a strategist, creative director, marketer, and reinventionist, Joe has helped companies create the most powerful and relevant visions of their brands and businesses in record time. He is widely considered to be one of the leading experts on rapid reinvention. Really excited to dive in with him, especially as the world in itself is literally in the midst of reinvention. Hi, Joe. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Hi, Melissa. Good morning. Good morning. Very good to connect. Very good to connect. And I mean it. I mean, we couldn't be speaking at a more um, uh, ideal time uh, for for your specialty of reinvention because um, across the board, the the world's kind of having to grasp that right now. Well, it's so fascinating uh, to your point that normally businesses in some kind of um, natural cycle, you know, have to re uh, re examine their customer understanding and core strategies and and get on with the work of refreshing their value proposition, customer experience, et cetera. But this amazing moment in time is essentially a reboot of every business on the planet. And, it, you know, we could not have imagined this, this uh, watershed time where really every business leader and team needs to ask themselves, What's changed significantly enough that I really need to, uh, you know, retool the way I think about going to market, how I do that, you know, how I connect with customers, engage with them, and so on. So it's really quite a fascinating time in commercial terms as well as in human terms. Absolutely, absolutely. I, I feel like I'm I'm wrapping my head around it and trying to analyze and figure out what's next on a daily basis, and then something new comes out the next morning, <laughs> and I have to reshift that mindset all over again. Hundred percent. So let's step back. You're referred to as a reinventionist. Tell us what that means to you, and can you share your methodology of how you approach reinvention? Yeah, happy to. So the term, honestly, I made up. Uh, I I started to think about change, um, you know, very early on in my life, and and as I went through um, industrial design school and ended up being a creative director and a strategist in in the brand world. I started to realize that the pace of change was uh, picking up to the extent that business leaders were um, challenged by, and and in many cases, not feeling equipped to deal with the compression of uh, everything: business life, uh, business model life cycles, um, brand life cycles, even the tenor of executives in in you know roles and so on. Everything was shortening. And the the toolkit that that we've had uh, as business leaders and consultants and advisors has been woefully short as these things have compressed. You know, we would do business strategy in one way and then hand it down to others that would start to do customer facing brand strategy and customer experience and so on. And in a time when everything lasted, 
you know, any determination you'd make would stick around for a long time. You could just kind of tweak things. Um, we were all fine. But then everything started to get shorter, faster, and the toolkit started to come short. And so, you know, I started to think about rapid reinvention. How can leadership teams get really clear on what's changing? How do they make sense of that? How do they entirely realign their business, not only in strategic terms, but in human terms, you know, leadership teams coming together to, 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 to chart a course forward? And how do they get the whole business culturally to engage and pivot to get change done faster and to create value and to ignite and re or reignite momentum? And uh, that's that's really been the journey. And, and as I gave it the handle, I said, well, I think there actually is a profession emerging here. And that is reinventionist. I love it. Um, so, so part of your approach towards reinvention is really leaning on a human-centric approach too. So, um, tell us what that means to you and how that influences your point of view and the strategies that you recommend. So, the, the you know, as you as we've been talking about the world, the world's changing. Um, we've got customer expectations long before this crisis that started to shift. Um, technology was a was an enabler in ways that we could not have imagined a decade ago. And the the profound um, change around customers being able to get what they want when they wanted it and to examine their choices quickly, you know on smartphones and and uh, and such really started to change everything. Along comes a crisis where many of the ways of doing things, businesses and, and customers alike, uh, started to be uh, compromised or completely eliminated. And what we needed to be able to do, you know, then and more so now, was look at, uh, you know, human insights, understand what is at the root of behavior and and customers making choices uh, underneath you know what would be obvious transactionally are um, uh, insights that can change the way you think about your business and your place in the world and so what I ended up doing was assembling a team of researchers insight specialists management consultants uh, creative people designers um, and activators and put them all under one roof so that we could be partners to enabling leadership teams to uncover these insights, refine and sharpen their strategies, and push that into uh, rapid activation across customer engagement that would keep pace with what's going on in the world. And that's been you know, my journey, the mission for a while, and it actually led me to the book. Uh, because after having done this about 40 times, I started to realize there was patterns. There was, there was, um, you know, things and ways of thinking and doing that changed the outcome, that upped the odds of success. So that's kind of how I got to where I'm I'm at today. And now the world needs, you know, more of what I think of as the reinventionist mindset uh, more than ever. Yes, absolutely. It's funny you bring up. Um you know, what's at the root of behavior and, and, and you also bring up technology and 
you know, a lot of the times when we work with clients, uh, one of the top questions asked are like, well, will consumers do it? Right. And so we're, we're, we've been at a phase where technology, um, to enable consumer behavior and in, in retail has existed for over a decade, right? We, RFID is not new, um, you know, uh, contactless payment isn't entirely new, um, right? Augmented reality has been around, uh, but a lot of the questions around uh, investing in it and implementing and integrating it into stores, for example, has been hindered by a couple of things, uh, IT, uh, IT infrastructure, cost, and will consumers use it? Will it be intuitive to their behavior? And now we're at a point in the world where because of, you know, the state of the pandemic, a lot of adoptions being accelerated very quickly. It's shaping new behaviors, and it's going. It's making the industry have to rethink because when we officially fully open doors, right now we're kind of in phase one of opening, so it's you know safety first and and all of that. But as we evolve into the next few years to come, what stores look like, the experiences that uh, consumers expect, it's going to be different. Um, so yes, so completely right. So how do we re how do we kind of um, re-engineer like those inner workings at brands and retailers to say, okay, we need to step back and rethink um, and and reassess consumer behavior and kind of reinvent what the store looks like? Yeah, I I, I look at it um, as as we were just talking about as what what was beginning and came before crisis, and then what has the crisis either changed completely or simply accelerated? And I think if you look at the last decade of retail, it's been a case of polarization where the need to be easy, to be transactionally efficient, to take out you know, more and more clicks so that you can get to what you want quicker um, or you know, efficient, smaller footprint stores, for example, that have sort of come back, whether they're dollar stores or drug stores, that really respond to that need for ease and convenience and speed. That's kind of one side of the of the retail equation today that's super important. And it's because the benchmark isn't against other physical stores. It's against, you know, the digital engagement and direct delivery as, as the new benchmark for what easy looks like. And so that's really caused, uh, because of technology enabling all of that, that's really caused a reset in retail. And you can just see that um, taking hold in lots of different ways, uh, obviously, including um, e-com and, and digital. On the other end of the spectrum, there's been this build towards experience. And these things are related. If I can get what I want efficiently, as efficiently as click and it is delivered to my home or office, then what is the reason I need to go to stores? And while e-com penetration has been relatively low, depending on which category, it's been a strong, steady march uh, towards um, more and more customers embracing that option. And then through that, looking at stores and saying, well, why do I need to go there anymore? You know, the store was a riff on storehouse. It was the place where products that I needed were kept. And, you know, it was fundamentally a transactional um, construct. You know, I go in, I find what I'm looking for, I pay and I leave. 
And uh, but that whole idea of fulfillment is now being replaced, I, I believe, eclipsed by a much better, a much more efficient option for for businesses, for customers. So the role of the store then becomes, you know, why why does it exist? And what I, I've been excited to see, and I know, you know, in, in conversations we've had and, and in my own work, the store as a place for something other than goods fulfillment, a place to discover, a place, a place to learn, a place to connect with not only new ideas and products and services, but with one another as communities. And that began, you know, many years before, you know, I, I point to our work with Staples, for example, and some of the, the new um, experiential uh, store formats that are coming out, as well as, say, Joanne's stores, um, as, as good examples, and even Lululemon. Um, you know, the, the goods are there, but the reason to visit is not about the goods themselves. You know, I, I often say to CEOs and other leadership teams, if you're selling product alone, uh, you've missed the point. Sell something the customers value more, and the result will be you'll sell more product. So I'm I'm excited to see you know that building and that redefinition of what stores are for. Um, and there's many good examples. I mean, Nike would be one, Apple would be another, and what they've done experientially, many others. But along comes a crisis, and it accelerates and amplifies that polarization. Uh, more people coming online and buying uh, for direct delivery means more stores disenfranchised from their conventional role. And so I believe that that drive towards making stores more meaningful and reasons to visit that have very little to do with product fulfillment and everything to do with human engagement and all of the wonderful things that are associated with ideas like community and discovery, that's where retail's going alongside this very efficient model, either e-com direct delivery as one version or super efficient stores. You know, Amazon Go may not be something that worked uh, to the extent that Amazon wanted it to or customers were ready for, but it shows what the future looks like when you think about ease and, and transactional efficiency. You know, it's interesting you bring that up because to me, the added challenge on top of what you just said is many environments are going to have to dual purpose for both. Right now, as you've seen a bigger adoption for BOPIS and curbside, and how how do we create store environments in the future that can successfully deliver on both? Because to your point, one one side of it, the success metrics will be around um, uh, convenience and speed, and then on the flip side, there's the aspect of discovery. So to me, that's going to be an interesting challenge of how do you maintain an environment that can successfully deliver on both? Mm-hmm. It's, it's a great point. In fact, I, I think of convenience differently today, given what's going on with customer expectation, you know, uh, touchless uh, product delivery or, or fulfillment uh, in the kinds you're, you're in the ways you're saying, uh, BOPUS or <laughs> BOPUS was the uh, acronym. I there's heard. so I mean, many. You know, buy online, pick up curbside. We have like, <laughs> I, there's like so many three and five letter acronyms we have to learn today. Like, <laughs> yeah, uh, absolutely. But I think today, um, particularly in the context of crisis and coming out of it, convenience is choice. And, and by that, I mean, 
imagine a, a highly experiential um, engagement between a customer and a retailer. And I, I think soon it will be inclusive once again of physical uh, environments and 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 of course digital combined with that and and these two worlds which i think were very very uh distinct from one another are becoming more intertwined more connected and so we're you know today i i don't think of the store channel and the digital channel i think of the customer channel there's only one channel um but your point is right which is wherever retailers go to engage customers in deeper, more meaningful ways, there must be a baseline of ease and convenience. And and I come back to the idea of choice, which is a customer that engages with a retailer and and has you know an epiphany around, wow, I didn't know that was possible, or I just learned something, or I'm so happy to connect with other people that are on similar journeys or have shared beliefs and pursuits like I do. Now I, I really want to get that latest bit of technology or I want to buy that product or I really want to sign up and become a member. That baseline now is how would you like that to happen? And, and I think of it as no clicks uh, because we built customer relationships that are just so easy and efficient and seamless. It's delivered to you, delivered to your office. Uh, would you like to take it with you? Would you like that today, tomorrow, next week? You tell us when it's convenient. If retailers don't actually meet that new standard, that, that table stakes of ease and convenience and choice in the transactional sense, I, I fear they will be deselected. And regardless of how good they are on the experiential aspect, if, they, if they're not meeting that, that fundamental reset of this is the standard of ease I now expect as a customer. Uh, they're not going to be in good shape. So I, I think your point is 100% right. It's not enough to do one or the other. You need to do both. Absolutely. You need to do both. And, and it's going to be a tricky balance. And, you know, it might mean a different allocation in front of house, back of house. It, it might mean a bigger investment in modular design. It You know, there's so many aspects, I think, to look at now, which um, which is exciting. It kind of catapults that that just rethink a bit um, because to your to your point, like a lot of this has existed kind of in the background. It's now being put to the forefront now. So, my question then is uh, another another thing that you know brands and retailers are always juggling in their mind is ROI. H how do you rethink that now, right? Like, what are the right performance metrics to be tracking um, in, in, in the future as we're creating environments that have to dual purpose um, what they deliver to to customers? Yeah, well, here's the very tough part of this. All of this, your your, your question is right to the heart of how do we make money? And right now it is a challenging environment for a couple of reasons that most digital direct models today don't make money that in retail, generally speaking, the stores are what makes money and, and the, the build into the new demand 
customers shopping online, expecting delivery or or pickup. Pickup, I think, is a is a slightly um, more economic model. Uh, you know, yet to be kind of honed and and refined and so on, but direct delivery is is highly ineconomic for almost everyone and and so the challenge becomes how do i migrate from how i make money today and where my capital is heavily invested you know physical locations in in the main and bridge my way into the new way that customers want to be served and there isn't a silver bullet but but there is a way to do it that that will prove and move towards uh, econo- uh, better economics and and performance and so on. One of the things that many retailers did early on was they they took a read on investing into e-com and and delivery and such. And most said, look, it's a rounding error on the business today. The penetration in our category is generally quite low. You know, even if it got to 5%, we've still got 95% of our sales tied up in stores, and we are profitable in that model. Um, Some challenges there. The status quo wasn't a happy place, you know, as time went by with store models, you know, being the wrong size, in the wrong locations, tired in many cases. But but they, they looked at the new and they said, let's keep an eye on it. Let's maybe try a few things, but generally most big legacy players were too slow to move because they just didn't think they could make money and that it would matter much for some time to come. Well, today we've just experienced the the greatest trial period of we could have ever imagined of customers saying, well, I don't know if I love to shop online. Maybe I've tried it in a category or, you know, I don't do it at all. Well, suddenly I have to. And so we're not going back. We've crossed the Rubicon into, you know, online ordering and purchasing and delivery and pickup and, and all of that. And so those legacy players are forced now to either catch up fast or jump in, uh, you know, in the first place because they, they left it for too long. And that's a really tough spot to be. How do you make money? How do you get ROI when you're playing catch up against not only your rival legacy players that are ahead of you and and have figured some things out and figured out how to make it more efficient, but against pure plays who don't have all the legacy assets and the bad, you know, technology platforms and the big networks of physical stores that may or may not be making money. So, but there is a way, and I, I, you know, I think of it as proven move. It's, it's take stock Today, we've had a, you know, we are actually experiencing a great reckoning in retail where many players will be casualties, where those that survive will finally be forced to to rationalize the past and get it into shape that they can build on to go forward. And I think that's an exciting moment. Now, it's not a big Hail Mary bet now on the new, which always fails or almost always fails. It's just a methodical Step by step, let's test our way and 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 prove and move our way into things that work for our customers and work for our business. That's what the the playbook of you know getting to a better place to me looks like. Absolutely, I think that makes a ton of sense. Um, earlier in our talk, you you brought up um, 
Nike and Apple, for example, which I think, you know, they, they, they've definitely been trailblazers in a lot of senses. And, you know, people look to the environments that they've created and what they can glean from it. And, you know, not everything that they've been able to accomplish is, is attainable for, for all brands and retailers. But I think it's inspired a lot thematically, such as at the Apple environment has been about contactless payment, not contactless, but not the cash wrap, right? About, about having efficient checkout. And, and the new Nike stores, if I think of, uh, you know, the one on Fifth Avenue, New York City, that's all contactless payment. And the, you know, they have a very uh, robust audience downloading the app. And so it was really intuitive for their environment to, to integrate that. So while not everybody is like going to be able to deliver it in the same ways, what, what, what kinds of companies do you think are best positioned when we involve to the new norm? Like what aspects do you think they need to have in place? Yeah, it's a, I have to recover from sort of this weepy moment I'm having as I think about visiting the Nike store on Fifth Avenue. Gosh, I can't wait till that comes back. <laughs> yeah, it's phenomenal what they did. Yeah, and and just going to any physical store would would be a luxury. Uh, imagine that. So, you know, what are the characteristics? Uh, I think I think companies that you know really are agile in the way that they think. What what happens a lot of times, and particularly with businesses that have been successful for a long time, is they start to think about um, change as monumental. In that, wow, the future, you know, as it's unfolding, is a lot different than how we're built, and therefore we better figure out and be darn sure that we've got the exact right model. And I'll, I'll bring it into a retail context. How many times, Melissa, have you heard a retail leadership team say, well, we're working on our store of the future? Or, you know, we, we did this store of the future, and of course we mothballed it at a certain point for, for these reasons. But we think about the future as this, this completely new, you know, to infinity and beyond. It's going to be something amazing. It's going to be something big. It's it's going to eclipse what we know today and replace it. That isn't really what equips leadership teams. If you think that way, you're disadvantaged right out of the gate. The way I recommend um, uh, approaching it is, you know, the future arrives daily. What you want to do is participate in its shaping and reshaping. And by that, I mean, simply get things out of, you know, your head or, or the lab or out of, you know, out of the, the PowerPoint document on the screen in the boardroom table and get them into the field fast to test and learn, to, to understand what works and what could be economic and what is going to help differentiate you and your business and create a muscle around doing that on a on a on a revolving basis and that's different than i think the way most leadership teams historically have thought about you know big change and we're certainly in a big change moment it's going to be a hard pivot well no it won't be yes look at new opportunities or things you must respond to, but then break it down into bite-sized pieces and parts and say, what do I have to know? What do, what do I have to believe uh, that customers uh, will come along with? And how will I translate that into a business model that makes money? And that is just a series of steps. Once you get a sense of 
what's happening, you know, deep insight work, uh, particularly with customers, then it's really, where do I believe at this moment, I can always adjust it. It's not a moonshot. I can be off by a degree and, you know, and, and just adjust as I go. But what do I have to um, uh, head towards? And now how do I break it down into uh, steps? And and so maybe a long-winded way of answering your question, but the leadership teams that are equipped for success are the ones that are thinking that way. Um, you know, I'll, I'll give you another retail example. I remember working with a leadership team and out of a, a deep insight uh, work um, and, um, and strategy process, we uh, defined a new way forward for this company. And one of the first steps was an evolved store. And of course, in the early days, as you know very well, you know, you spend more money because there's no economies of scale. You're experimenting with lots of things. You're trying to understand how far up is up. And and that generally, you know, costs a lot of money. Well, the finance group went off with that information and modeled it out across the entire fleet of thousands of stores and said, you know, we don't have two and a half billion dollars to go and refresh the, that business. And that initiative was almost killed because of that. And the point that that I made and some of the, the leaders I was working with um, made was that we can't think of it as we're going to spend this amount of money across every one of our stores. That's not the point here. The point is simply to get around the next corner so we can learn what we can learn, we can see what we can see, and then keep going. And we'll refine what works. We'll go hard at what didn't work to make it work. And when we believe it can't, we'll ditch it. And we'll get on with scaling, you know, what is working and what's successful. That is that's more of a tech industry kind of iterative approach than I think the way the retail industry has historically behaved. It's interesting. It's going to be it's going to be a lot of uh, moving parts and things to figure out right now. Um, and uh, as you mentioned, as you think of some of the stores, I've been having my craving moments to, to, to go out too. So it's going to be interesting. But as we roll out these first phases of openings, it's really going to be all about, you know, listen, learn and iterate. It really is. So it's going to be super important that brands and retailers approach it with that mindset if they're going to be successful. Yeah. And maybe even at a, at a, a more foundational level. To see this moment, this crisis and its aftermath, as the single largest opportunity of our professional lifetimes—that's that's how I'm 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 thinking of it. Now, there can be pushback, and I'm sure your listeners might say some of them, "Wait, wait, 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 wait!" Like we've just come through the most punishing time. It's not done yet. We're, you know, we're getting a crash course in liquidity management. How the heck can you, Joe, see this as an opportunity? Any time that there is a massive uh, shift in what humans value and what their beliefs are, and and those are causing them to reset their expectations and their desires, that is a massive opportunity in terms of share shift. Um, there's a lot of share that's going to be loose, simply because some players are falling. And, and whatever, you know, customer relationships and, and dollars that were attached, uh, those are now back into the market for someone to take. The other reality is, you know, as, as long as you have the wherewithal, and I appreciate that's not a small endeavor to get through these difficult times, but look at some of the practical factors. 
today is the moment to go after acquiring customers. You know, I was reading um, a study that said media is 40% cheaper. You know, the cost of customer acquisition, roughly 40%. Now, that's, that was a global um, uh, uh, comment. But customers are engaging more deeply by a factor of plus 40%. So you've got this incredible moment where if you have the wherewithal, if you can get yourself past the, oh, crap, we're in crisis management mode. You got to, I, I appreciate that's what leaders had to do. We need to get past that and start looking ahead at the opportunity that's there and realize this is a rare moment to go hard at refreshing not only your your, your understanding of customers and what they want now, uh, but also you know quickly reset your strategy and then get on with creating the next and the next after that and do it in a really, really focused, disciplined way, but be very, very open to doing things differently than the past. And and that's the other key, I would say, is, you know, see it as an opportunity, go at it with a proven move, you know, piece and part uh, way, and then open yourself up to the possibility that you're going to do things quite differently than the past. And that's a beautiful thing about the crisis is that it it's caused more innovation simply because of force. Like, sorry, you can't do it that way anymore. So what's the workaround? I actually think this is going to be remembered as one of the most innovative times in consumer marketing and retail ever, simply because, you know, I, you know, that expression invention necessity is the mother of invention well necessity is the mother of reinvention as well that's great that's almost a perfect place to to, to end this with that quote i'm in, i'm jotting that down necessity drives innovation um no it's true it's it's interesting because the increasing cost of customer acquisition for example, was driving a lot of D2C brands to go from just being online destinations to opening brick and mortar. And uh, Mike Duda is a VC in the in the business uh, in the industry. Recently, said what you were, you're talking about is you know D2C brands. I would be putting money into online right now because it's so cheap to do so. And I can attest as a consumer, you know, I am more engaged with brands. I'm doing live workouts with you know, uh, with places on my Insta live, I just did a virtual beauty chat with the Chanel team to go over how do I do my eye makeup better. And I spent 45 minutes with that person and I'm probably going to shop. And I, I don't know if I would have done that otherwise. So there is a lot of opportunity there and, and it is a time to think outside the box. And, and I agree workarounds are, are, um, forcing innovation to happen and innovative thought. So this is a lot, um, a lot of good tidbits and things for people to kind of chew on and think about. Um, I like to end as, as we wrap it up and I feel like you gave some hints, but you know, while we're living in this work from home environment and travel is limited, um, when life goes back to normal, what are your three must things to do or places to visit? And, and, you know, if somebody were to travel to where you live, well, I would say the first thing, uh, I live in Toronto, Canada. Most of my work is in America, but uh, home base is here. And uh, what I've really loved about this uh, city is it's got scale. So it would have all the things that many people would value, you know, major league uh, sports franchises and, and um, you know, real amenities of a big city. And yet it is uh, of a size and kind that... It's a very livable uh, place. So 
I would encourage, you know, as, as borders get uh, a little more fluid and, uh, and restrictions get lifted, I would encourage people to come here. And there would be three things I would point to. One would be uh, the islands. Most people would not instantly think of Toronto as having islands, but it's on, of course, the north side of Lake Ontario. And uh, it has a wonderful uh, sequence of small islands. One has a, a, a small uh, short takeoff landing airport on it. But it's one of the most beautiful places, like pristine um you know, lakeside experience, parkland setting and so on. So, and it's a ferry ride away. Uh, secondly, it would be a place called Stacked Market. And Stacked, I just had um, on my own podcast, uh, Matt Rubinoff, who's the founder and creator of uh, Stacked. And it's a, an entire city block in the downtown Toronto core that is um, the most fascinating place. Uh, it's like a mall on fast forward. It's uh, shipping containers that are regularly reconfigured with brands and and artists and and um, food purveyors and uh, you know big retailers and national brands doing pop-ups and so on in this ever-changing fluid experience. And it, of course, it's temporarily closed right now because of the the crisis, but it will reopen, I'm I'm sure soon. And then lastly, I, I would just point to the restaurant scene. Uh, Toronto is known as a multicultural city, uh, as is uh, Canada, um, not a, a melting pot in the sense uh, that America was defined in that way, but uh, defined as a mosaic that you can experience many, many cultures in one place. I would check out the restaurant scene, which I can't wait to get back to. I have many friends in, in the restaurant uh, world, and uh, it's it would be like traveling around the world in the you know the the reality of a number of city blocks you can experience some of the finest most interesting innovative food in this place um very very easily i love it i mean my list thank you for asking yeah it makes you reminisce right i mean my list of restaurants to go to is definitely growing well this was a great conversation um like i said a lot of insightful tidbits um I thank you so much for joining us. Everyone, this is Retail Refined, a market scale podcast. And today we have our guest, Joe Jackman. And I hope you enjoyed the conversation. I sure did, Melissa. It's always a pleasure to connect with you. I find it, it just incredibly interesting. And, uh, and, and you know, something is always revealed in, in, the, in the process. So uh, thank you. I appreciate you having me on the show. Absolutely.